This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at leesa.com. Whether it's railways or highway construction, infrastructure projects in the U.S. often means high price tags and lengthy timelines. Perhaps no project captures this better than Boston's Central Artery Tunnel Project, more commonly known as the Big Dig. It's the nation's most expensive highway project, and it took more than two decades to plan and build. We asked you about your memories of the highway's construction, and here's what some of you told us. Hi, this is Betty calling you from Sarasota. I lived in Boston when the big dig was happening, and everybody was concerned. And it started out with like a two or three billion dollar thing, and it was it just took forever. It was a huge inconvenience to everybody. We felt it was going to be a, a disaster. Anyway, thank God it was finally done, and that took forever too. Hi, my name's Alicia, and I live in Weston. But I lived in Cambridge during the big dig, and we never thought we'd see it end. We were very pleased, however, that the Mass Pike went all the way to the airport and saved us a lot of time. But the huge miss in the project was that they never connected North and South Station with a direct rail link. Big, big mistake. Thanks for those messages. The Big Dig is also a new podcast from GBH News in Boston. The nine-part podcast series explores the history of the highway and what lessons it holds for future infrastructure projects. We'll listen to the first episode of the podcast a little later. In the episode, we learn how the project came to be. But first, we sit down with host and producer of the podcast, Ian Koss, and get a behind-the-scenes look at the Big Dig. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with the conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. Ian, welcome to 1A. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So you grew up in the Boston area while the Big Dig was under construction. How did you understand the project back then? At the time, I think I only had the vaguest understanding of it. I mean, I remember seeing the elevated central artery, that old highway that ran right through the city. I remember walking under it. I remember the noise, the fences. Um, 
But I didn't really understand what the project was, except that everyone was furious about it. That's what I remember. (laughs) Uh, The story of the Big Dig is centered around Boston, but communities all over the country have experienced budget-breaking projects with timelines that stretch out years beyond initial projections. Here's Doug in Florida. Here in Orlando, we've had two projects that have taken uh, what I consider to be an inordinate amount of time. We had the ultimate uh, I-4 expansion, which added lanes to I-4, and then the Brightline train system uh, that goes between Miami and Orlando, which is a rapid rail system, just opened. It took them probably over four or five years to get the whole thing from scratch to built. You know, I just don't understand why these things take so long. How is the Big Dig an extreme case of what's wrong with American infrastructure projects? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to tell this story is that it it felt like the perfect case study for understanding the moment we're in now with infrastructure. I think in part because it covers this period of time when it got a lot more difficult to build things. You know, if we go back to the 1950s, the 60s, the era when we built the interstates, we built stuff a lot faster, generally a lot cheaper. And over these, you know, last, you know, the last half century, we have for many good reasons, made it more difficult and more complicated to build big infrastructure projects. And the Big Dig kind of captures that period of time um, when not a lot of huge projects get undertaken at all. And yet this one does, and it survives, and it gets built, of course, at extraordinary cost. Yeah, you know, you get into the the money piece of these infrastructure projects, uh, the community and neighborhood concerns, yeah. the politics. I mean, it is so layered. And, and we're talking about years leading up to the project even being approved. What did you think you understood about what it takes to build a major infrastructure project in the U.S. before you worked on this project that you yeah. realized you didn't yeah. know at all? Yeah, I mean, part of the eye-opening thing, and, you know, we structured the series kind of deliberately in that it's, you know, we take four episodes before a single shovel hits the ground, right? Um, And if you're, you know, if you're tuning into the podcast expecting that you're going to hear about concrete and trucks and holes right away, um, you've got another thing coming because it took... 20 years of politics and coalition building and wrangling and permitting um, and stuff that sounds a little wonky on the surface. But to me, at least, if you look at it up close and personal, it's uh, I mean, it's high political drama. Um, And that's what it takes. Um, It takes several administrations. Like I said, it takes decades. It takes real cunning perseverance and in many cases just raw political power to make something of this scale happen. And that was eye-opening to me. Um, It never occurred to me as a child, you know, that this thing had actually been set in motion when my parents were kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it also takes vision because it occurred to me while listening to the podcast that at then-governor Michael Dukakis was yeah. really pushing for public transit, not a, mm-hmm. not a major mm-hmm. highway to be built in Boston. On the other side of this, do you think about how the city might look differently, might look different, had it gone in a different a direction around transportation? Yeah. I mean, that is the great irony at the heart of this project is that it's Michael Dukakis, who is Mr. Like, I ride the green line to the state house every morning like everyone else. Like, that, that was his public image as governor. He was all about transit. 
But he faced this kind of challenging moment where, A, there was a lot of pressure to deal with the highways, you know, to deal with the road system in Boston. And B, there was actually money for it. There was this thing called the federal, you know, the Highway Trust Fund, right? Um, And so faced with that pressure and that opportunity, he pursued the project that he had before him that felt like the best possible highway project he could pursue, right? But at the end of the day, like you said, it's a road project. It is a $15 billion underground monument to the automobile. And I think, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right to look back now and say, well, what if we had torn down that old elevated artery and instead, you know, spent all that money improving transit and connecting the station, you know, getting people out of cars. Decades before the big dig, when Boston was first building its highways, the city displaced many residents of Chinatown and other neighborhoods. And how did the planners of the big dig weigh the impact of displacement differently than planners did when they were dreaming up the interstate highways? Yeah. So exactly 40 years ago this year, uh, when our governor, uh, then-Governor Michael Dukakis, got up on stage to announce this project of tearing down the elevated artery, putting it underground, one of the things he said and really emphasized in that speech was that they would do it all without taking a single person's home. Or apartment or, you know, and that was such an important part of the ethos of the whole project, um, really from the beginning, that this was going to be a different kind of highway project that would put people first. But I think the other side of that that we have to then sort of reckon with in how the project unfolds is that in an effort to be gentler, to be kinder, to be more compassionate, it turns out it's also very complicated and very expensive. Ian, who do you think gets left out of the conversation when city planners are thinking about how infrastructure changes will affect the community? Yeah, I think it depends, you know, what era you're looking at. Um, Certainly in the interstate era of the 1950s and 60s, it was those communities that did not have the political power and leverage in the halls of power to, to make their voices heard. Um, So you played the clip of Randy Toe, for example, resident of Chinatown. Um, At that time, you know, when the interstates were being planned through Boston, you know, the the residents of Chinatown had basically no leverage in that process. Um, When the interstates were planned through uh, Roxbury, which is really the heart of the the black community and culture in Boston, um, again, very little consideration was given to the impact on those neighborhoods. Um, But I think what's important to stress, too, that's, you know, part of why I find the Big Dig story so interesting and inspiring was that in Boston, there was a remarkable coalition that formed around opposing highways. And this is really unusual. You know, there are anti-highway movements in a lot of cities. But what you had in Boston in the late 60s and early 70s was really a cross-neighborhood movement, a cross-racial movement. Um, that coalesced around stopping these highways. And it was incredibly effective. So ultimately, why do you think the reputation of the Big Dig is generally more negative than positive, given that it accomplished its goals? Yeah, and this was really why I, part of why I wanted to make this series in the first place is because it seemed like there was a real disconnect for me. You know, I, I live in Boston now. I see the fruits of it. Most of the people I talk to seem pretty, you know, happy that they can get to the airport and that they can walk through downtown and there's no elevated highway, right? Um, and yet, you know, I remember as a kid all these terrible stories. I heard about it. Um, and so it, it's complicated that it it holds this mixed legacy. And I think 
part of the lesson that I take from The Big Dig is about communication and storytelling. Um, Because as problematic as this project was, ultimately, it really wasn't a boondoggle. It was transformative. It did deliver on its core promises. Um, And so I think the question that begs of us as a society and our leaders is, when we are undertaking a big project like this, how do we communicate that to the public? How do we anticipate just how big and transformative it will be and also how expensive it will be so that we can all be kind of in that understanding together and not feel constantly burned um, and cynical Mm. about the process? Well, we heard from plenty of people who have not so fond memories of the Big Dig, but not everyone who was in Boston during the project has bad feelings about it. My name is Allison, and I'm from the greater Boston area. I worked in downtown Boston for several years of the Big Dig. I commuted on public transportation and private vehicle, and I found it to be excellent. How the city managed to keep traffic moving and streets open is beyond comprehension, but they did. Allison, thanks for that message. We also got this email from Nick that reads, I live in Cincinnati, and we've been talking about infrastructure for years, particularly the replacement of the Brent Spence Bridge. It's coming now at a cost of $3 billion, but we could desperately use more public transit, and that $3 billion would have gone a long way to bringing that transit online and reducing the amount of traffic on the Brent Spence Bridge. The new bridge is just going to induce demand and end up in the same place in a couple of decades. Public transit for the win. I mean, when you take a step back, Ian, and you look at the big dig, beyond that question of communication, mm-hmm. what are the other important lessons we can take away from that project, especially when we look at some of the necessary infrastructure investments yeah. we need across the country? Yeah. I think there are a few very practical lessons I take from this story. One is that we have to, when we're going to undertake a project, we need to be better at committing to funding it in a in a predictable way. The Big Dig was sort of in this constant precarious state of feeling like its funding might get yanked away at any moment. And that, you know, forces people to not, not always behave in the most kind of rational, structured way. Um, it forces you to kind of rush things into construction. It forces you to sort of downplay what you think the costs will be so that, you know, the folks in Washington don't get too upset about it. And so one of the real lessons for me is that political dysfunction around infrastructure funding actually makes it a lot harder to execute infrastructure projects. And really briefly, the other two lessons? The other would be around environmental permitting, which was something that we created in order to make projects, you know, more ethical, to make them consider communities more. But it also made it very difficult and expensive to build big projects. So I think it's worth looking hard at our permitting system And also, I think the way we contract with private companies. And if you listen to the show, I think you hear a lot about funding, permitting, and contracting throughout. um, Because really, those things are very important to how we build things. That's Ian Koss. He's the host and producer of the Big Dig podcast from GBH News. You can find the podcast at WGBH.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ian, it's a great listen. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Let's turn now to the first episode of The Big Dig, titled Part 1, We Were Wrong. We'll let our friends at GBH take it from here. 
There are many strange and bitter ironies in the story of the Big Dig, but here's what has to be my favorite. It's the most expensive highway project ever built in America, and yet the architect, the man who started it all, hated highways. My grandmother lived near here on Lincoln Street. A man named Fred Salvucci. And uh, to engage in ethnic stereotypes, she was this Italian lady that grew terrific tomatoes and sold them to the Polish people next door, as if only Italians know how to grow tomatoes. But she grew everything there, tomatoes, potatoes, beans, basil, garlic. It was an incredibly big garden. And she lost all that. Yeah, she lost all that. The Massachusetts Turnpike stretches across the state like a life-giving artery, 123 miles. Back in the 1950s, when Fred Salvucci was a teenager, the state of Massachusetts was on a highway-building spree, east to west, north to south, and all around the city of Boston. The greatest of these new roads was the Mass Turnpike. Six lanes, three in each direction, a highway miracle knifing through the heart of New England. The state celebrated the occasion with this nearly hour-long documentary film. But for a young Salvucci, it was not a time to celebrate because the road came right through his neighborhood. They took the southern half of Lincoln Street. The neighborhood was mostly Lithuanian and uh, Polish people. Yeah, very poor people with no education, didn't know how to protect themselves. Obviously, some families had to be moved. Structures not worth saving were demolished or burned on the spot. My grandmother was a 70-year-old widow. They came to her house in September and gave her a dollar and a piece of paper saying, the land is now ours, you have to go. We'll eventually give you an estimate of what we're willing to pay. And they just squeezed people. And to those responsible for the Turnpike's building, we say, hats off. So it was outrageous, and I kind of promised myself that if I ever had anything to do with public works, I would never treat people the way people had treated my grandmother with the turnpike. So why is it that a man scarred by highways would set out to build one? The answer is that he wanted to build a better kind of highway, a more humane kind of highway. And that's what the Big Dig was. But if that's all it was, well... We wouldn't be here, would we? The subject of infrastructure inspires deep cynicism in America today. There's a feeling that once our cities were the envy of the world... But now we can barely keep our trains running. That once we built the interstate, and now anytime we even attempt something ambitious, it's over budget and behind schedule before a single shovel hits the dirt. Running nearly three years behind schedule. Delay could jeopardize the train's funding plan. There's almost a sense of glee each time our doubts are proven correct. A multi-billion dollar project now. We can shake our heads and laugh it off. What a joke. But only after many more years of costly and complicated construction. For me, no one project embodies the cynicism around American infrastructure quite like the one Fred Savucci would one day take on. What we here in Boston call 
the big dig. If you think you are furious about the big dig, the mess, and the cost overruns, you've got company. If that name, Big Dig, has only the vaguest meaning to you, don't sweat it. We'll get there. But it was a tunnel project. And when I was growing up in Massachusetts in the 1990s, it was hard to ignore. Back then, the project went by many names. It was called The Big Mess, The Big Hole, The Big Pig, The Big Lie. It was, as everyone loved to point out, the most expensive public works project in American history, full stop. It went on, in my young mind, forever, from before I started kindergarten until after I graduated high school. And at the end of all that, it was held up for the world to see as a boondoggle. A $14 billion fiasco. A cautionary tale. Everything that could go wrong. A punchline. The Big Dig, a construction project that backed up traffic for 16 years. I mean, there are commuters just getting home now. (laughs) But if it is a joke, then the joke's on us. And I don't just mean us, the suckers up in Boston. I mean all of us. Because there are big things that need building in this country. And I, for one, want to know where that cynicism comes from. The feeling that America can't build big things. My name is Ian Koss, and from GBH News, this is The Big Dig, a study in American infrastructure. In many ways, this first episode is the prequel, the turning point that sets the whole saga in motion. We're not going to talk about the big dig just yet, or about how hard it is to build in America. We're going to start back in a time when America built a lot, maybe too much, especially when it came to highways. This is the story of the inevitable backlash, the anti-highway movement. Part one, we were wrong. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at L-E-E-S-A dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. You didn't start your e-commerce business to get stuck packing boxes, so let the experts handle it. ShipBob will fulfill orders for you while letting you track inventory and order metrics through their cloud-based dashboard. Leverage their 50 global fulfillment centers, direct integrations with all major e-commerce platforms and sales channels, and two-day shipping to scale your brand your way. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. Ship Bob. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits. 
no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. The origin story of Fred Savucci and the Big Dig are really one and the same story. They both begin with the truly most sweeping and expensive building project in American history. That would be the interstate system. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels, an automotive age traveling on time-saving superhighways. The interstate is so ubiquitous now, it's almost invisible to us. We're talking about nearly 50,000 miles of highway running through every state in the country. It's the reason you can drive from Seattle to Boston without making a single turn or hitting a single traffic light. And not just to the edge of the city, but right into the heart of it. They can lift traffic up over city congestion with elevated highways raised by an aroused public. In the 50s and 60s, these roads meant progress, the future. In San Francisco, the Bayshore Freeway is getting... The big American cities, including Boston, were losing people to the suburbs, specifically white people. Highways were seen as a way to bring them back in. And for the states, the whole thing was basically free. President Eisenhower's militant call for a modern, controlled-access highway system led to the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. The deal was this. The feds provide 90% of the money. The states are responsible for the planning and building. As long as what you're building is an interstate highway. In Massachusetts, just like everywhere else, the interstate program was a pretty hard deal to turn down. You had federal money available, ready to go. You had a plan and the promise of jobs to the tune of about a billion dollars. So to say no to all that seemed unthinkable. Carolyn Crockett is the author of the book People Before Highways and also a professor at MIT. She argues that despite all the incentives to build, 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 the costs of that building would eventually force city residents to think the unthinkable. So the anti-highway fight becomes a, a moment of imagining possibilities. In the 1960s, there were anti-highway movements all over the country. In San Francisco, New York, D.C. In many ways, Boston was late to the party. But the consequences of what happened here would be more sweeping than any of the highway battles before it. It would change the way cities and states around the country thought about their urban highways. And Fred Salvucci was at the center of it. So to go back to where we started, with young Fred Salvucci's story. When he made that promise to his grandmother to treat people better, to build more humanely, it was not at all clear he would ever get to act on it. As long as he could remember... The plan had always been for him to be a bricklayer, like his father, Guido, was. G. Salvucci and Company would become G. Salvucci and Son. But the plan got thrown off when Fred was in junior high. His music teacher saw potential in him and suggested he apply for the city's most prestigious public school, Boston Latin. And he got in. First day at Latin, 
They give us a piece of paper, and it says that I intend to go to college. So I took the thing home, and I said, gee, my, I can't sign this. I, I don't intend to go to college. This, this is a lie. His friends in the neighborhood weren't even planning to finish high school, let alone go to college. But Fred's mother said, look, just across the river in Cambridge, you've got MIT, one of the best engineering schools in the world. And she made this deal with him. And she said, you go to work with your father every summer, and you learn to be a good bricklayer. You, you go to MIT if you can get in, and you learn to be a good civil engineer. When you finish, you can do whichever one you want. That's how Salvucci wound up a student at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. One day in the early 1960s, he's sitting in class, and a professor starts talking about a new highway project proposed for the city. His ears perk up. It sounded an awful lot like the highway that had taken his grandmother's house. It was another piece of insanity, something that I was sure made no sense. The difference was that this time, Armed with that degree in engineering, Savucci could actually do something about it. So let's get the lay of the land. There will be several highways you need to keep track of in this part of the story. But they all have a common origin, a master plan for the region drawn out way back in 1948. So if you could imagine something that highway planners often call spoken wheel system. So you're looking at radio roads coming out of a center circle. By the 1960s, a few pieces of that hub and spoke system had been built. But there were still, crucially, a handful of roads needed to complete the whole scheme, including something called the inner belt. So when we think about the inner belt road, it's the heart of that wheel. This is the road that Salvucci's professor was lecturing about, that Salvucci thought was absolutely insane. And he wasn't the only one. We said, no, 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 no. It's not going to happen. Anstey Benfield lived one block from the proposed route of the highway. Right square in the middle of the line of the inner belt. The road was supposed to start in Boston, then loop around into the neighboring city of Cambridge. That is where Anstey lived, and where the whole region's highway fight would begin. This part of Cambridge was largely working class. People used to call it the Greasy Village, because historically it had been the site of a massive factory that made soap from rendered pork fat. Then just down the road, you had the candy factories. Necco wafers, Charleston Chews, Junior Mints, all made in Cambridge, and all giving off smells of their own. So in the 1960s, you had a lot of longtime residents who had come to work the industrial jobs. Immigrants from Ireland, Poland, Barbados, Panama, and Black Americans coming up from the South. But this being Cambridge, Massachusetts, you also had the grad students and professors. One side was MIT, the other side was a hall of Harvard. I mean, a lot of Harvard. That meant engineers, sociologists, highly educated troublemakers of all stripes. Mayor Hayes, what is your objection to the abundance of hippies in Cambridge? The basic objection I have is the, the amount of them. Noam Chomsky was lecturing at MIT. Joan Baez was singing protest anthems in Harvard Square. Women's Liberation, 
the Vietnam War, it was pretty fertile ground for an activist movement. And a highway was the kind of issue that could bring everyone together, from Catholic priests and housewives to radical lefties and college students. I had my graduate degree in urban studies, and I had a lot of energy, and I needed something to do. Well, lo and behold, within a year of buying that house on Chestnut Street, they started planning to knock the thing down. At that point, I went into action. In early 1966, Anstey collected over a thousand signatures from other residents along the Interbelt route. I took the pile of signatures and nailed them to the wooden doors of City Hall. There's a picture of this in the local paper, the Cambridge Chronicle, with Anstey carrying her two-year-old daughter on her back. Within two weeks, they changed the wooden doors to glass. But the point was made. The residents of Cambridge would not go quietly. Around this same time, Fred Salvucci set aside his bricklaying dreams for good. He took a job as a transportation planner with the city of Boston. His boss, the mayor, actually supported the inner belt. But Salvucci found that many of his fellow city planners did not. So they started to meet. There was no game plan from the beginning. Uh, We just sort of stumbled into it. One of those rogue city planners started writing pieces about the highway for the Cambridge Chronicle. Well, why has Cambridge got its head in the sand? Why aren't we proposing alternatives? There are questions about whether the road ought to be built at all, but certainly if you're going to build it, it doesn't have to be this bad. And one day, a local priest reached out to the group. And said, gee, you're saying things that we're thinking in the neighborhood but you've got technical skills that we don't have. Would would you be willing to work with us? That call would change the course of the movement. All of a sudden, we're like unpaid consultants working for the neighborhood. And I want to stress just how radical this was. For years, states around the country had been telling residents, trust us, we know what's best. We have the experts. Now, here were those same experts saying no. The state is wrong. Eventually, Salvucci's group got a name, Urban Planning Aid. Did it feel like you were almost crossing enemy lines or something? I mean, you're working for the city, and then you're moonlighting, helping residents and communities organize to oppose the city and state. Were those things intention for you? I'm not by nature a sneaky person. So I sent the memo to my boss and said, look, At night, this is what I'm doing. I'm working with people who don't believe in these highways. If you have a problem, let me know and I'll find another job. He said, well, no, we don't want you to go, but we want you to stop doing what you're doing. And I said, well, you don't have an option. It's it's my life. I do what I believe in. He said, ah, you're crazy, but fine. Do what you're doing. (laughs) At that time, Salvucci was not convinced the inner belt could be stopped. You're the governor big construction companies, labor unions, not to mention a decade of unstoppable growth in the interstate system, all pushing to make the road happen. So Savucci was more focused on finding a way to make it less destructive, so fewer families would have to lose their homes, like his grandmother had. That might sound like a modest aim, but it turned into a battle. Mr. Chairman... 
members of the city council, ladies and gentlemen. This audio is from a Cambridge city council meeting in 1966, discussing the impact of various routes. First of all, I'd like to give a general description of the routes that have been considered as two possible or feasible alternates to the Brookline Elm route using the criteria which has been set up. The route that the state was proposing was terrible, in Salvucci's opinion. It went straight through the neighborhood, the old greasy village. If the plan was built, a sleepy one-way street lined with houses would be turned into an eight-lane elevated highway. The width that's required just for the structure would be roughly 135 feet. But there was a logical alternative, which Salvucci's group was able to actually map out and publish. It was just south of the original route, running along the path of old railroad tracks. This is referred to as Scheme E or N. It would take a fraction of the number of homes, but in a little twist of irony for Salvucci, it would go through the campus of MIT. And the present needs of MIT need to be considered. This, of course, set many MIT types against him and this alternate route. Savucci recalls one critical moment, really a very Cambridge moment, when faculty from MIT and Harvard basically wound up debating the root issue upstairs at the worst house in Harvard Square. On the neighborhood side was a Harvard economist named Kenneth Galbraith. Now, Galbraith had just flown in from Switzerland. That meant that Salvucci and another organizer named Jim Morey had only a few minutes to brief him on the details of the issue. So he's just come off of a plane and he's bleary-eyed and he's bounding up the steps two at a time. Galbraith, by the way, was six feet eight inches tall. Jim Morey is about five foot six. And he's running to keep up with Galbraith. And I'm two steps behind him. And talk about the elevator talk. Maury briefs Galbraith in the space that it takes this giant to go two steps at a time from the ground floor to the second floor of the worst house. So uh, Galbraith says, I think I got it. The meeting begins, and a professor from MIT speaks first. He basically said, look, I've been living here for a while now, and we keep trying to elect more progressive school committees and more progressive city councils. And every year, those people, that is the blue-collar population, get the majority. And we have lousy education and lousy government. And maybe, just maybe, if this highway knocks out 2,500 dwelling units and associated voters, maybe we'll win the next election. The guy sitting next to him then makes a similar argument, that the road should go through the neighborhood, not the campus. At which point, Galbraith picks up his arm, which seems to almost reach the other side of the room, points a finger and says, only a moral imbecile would articulate such a cynical argument. We're living in a country that's being torn apart by race, in a city that's being torn apart by racial strife, and somehow through some magic that none of us in this room is smart enough to understand, there's an integrated neighborhood here in Cambridge where people are getting along reasonably well, and they're low-income people and minorities, and how on earth could we ever think of destroying this precious resource? And he just carries the day. Galbraith 
These debates over the route were strategically important. They bought time, drew attention, and made sure that the whole city of Cambridge had a stake in the issue. As long as the road could go anywhere, everyone had a reason to oppose it. But ultimately, the fate of the inner belt could not be decided in Cambridge. This fight was bound for higher places. The governor's office, the White House. The trouble is, the occupants of those high offices could always change. And that would force the activists to change too. This election coverage is coming to you from WGBH-TV and WGBH-FM, Boston. 1966 was an election year for governor, and the man running to keep that job was named John Volpe, and he was a highway guy. Before becoming governor, Volpe had owned a major construction firm and then served as the very first leader of the Federal Highway Administration under Eisenhower. In Cambridge today, there is a mural that shows angry residents standing in front of a bulldozer. It's a little hard to tell just by looking, but if you ask Anstey Benfield, the man in the bulldozer is no other than... Governor Volpe. We're going to Volpe headquarters directly at this point. The election was November 8th. Urban planning aid scrambled to publish new data about the highways just beforehand, but it didn't matter. Joy is really broken out here at Volpe Richardson headquarters. Volpe was here to stay. During the next four years, we will try to work as hard, if not harder, than we have during the past two years. And again, as I say, place Massachusetts number one in all fields of endeavor. Thank you very much. So with a highway supporter firmly entrenched in the governor's office, the anti-highway activists now took their fight further up the ladder to Washington. And within a year, we had four or five busloads of kids to Washington. And, oh, yes, I can tell you, we had signs that said Cambridge is a city, not a highway. And all the kids started chanting, Cambridge is a city, not a highway. They will never build roads through our homes. And we would holler these songs out all the way to Washington from Cambridge. Oh, that ride was amazing. Anstey Benfield showed me another newspaper clipping. Three kids sitting on the grass outside the Capitol with the headline, Lollipop Lobby. That was on the Washington Post front page. I mean, that was the kind of thing that drew attention to our objections. Yeah, it's hard to say no to 150 singing children. That's exactly the idea. And the strategy paid off. The Lyndon Johnson administration ordered a pair of new studies on the inner belt, questioning both where the belt should go and whether it should be built at all. It was a huge win for Benfield, Savucci, and all the anti-highway folks. But just as those studies began, the whole game was turned on its head. It's time for new leadership for the United States of America. In 1968, Richard Nixon was running for president. And in the words of one Boston Globe reporter, Governor John Volpe was running right after him. Volpe was tired of Democrats in Washington holding up the inner belt. So he set out to replace them with himself. And it worked. 
When Richard Nixon becomes president, he immediately taps Volpe to be the head of transportation in D.C. Secretary of Transportation for the whole country. Volpe gave a speech after the election in which he spoke about the inner belt and told the crowd with confidence, there's a new administration taking office in Washington, and I think we'll start to see things happen. Again, author Carolyn Crockett. So Volpe gets whisked away, and quickly his second-in-command becomes governor. All of a sudden, the activists' allies in Washington had been replaced by their foe in Massachusetts. And their foe in Massachusetts had been replaced by a question mark. Didn't know anything about him. The question mark's name was Francis Sargent. So when Francis Sargent would become governor in this surprise, almost sleight-of-hand move, the thought on the ground was, hmm, we have maybe an opening here. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast, but now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At the same time that the debate over the inner belt is playing out in Cambridge, work is already beginning on another new highway in Boston. It's called the Southwest Expressway. And it's important because when linked together, the Southwest Expressway and the inner belt would carry traffic from Interstate 95 straight through the city. I-95 is the busiest interstate in the whole national system. And by 1968, when Nixon is elected president, the road already runs through almost every major city on the East Coast. It has cut through Miami's historic black neighborhood of Overtown. It has cut through New York along the Cross Bronx Expressway. It has gone through New Haven, Connecticut. Providence, Rhode Island, and now its two strands of concrete have literally arrived at the edges of Boston where they are waiting for the gates to open. The person holding the keys, so to speak, was the brand new governor of Massachusetts, Francis Sargent. To change his mind, it would take more than just activists in Cambridge, plus some rebellious city planners. It would take a coalition including all the neighborhoods along the Southwest Expressway. So we had this very sophisticated strategy. We, we went down to the gas station, got a road map, and we, with crayon, we marked out the route of the proposed interstates, and we just went neighborhood by neighborhood, wherever the crayon mark went. I went to a meeting where a group called Urban Planning Aid showed us these godforsaken plans. And uh, it was stunning. Anne Hirschfang was one of many, many people who heard a version of that presentation. It included drawings of the highways and maps with dark lines superimposed on them. Images that could activate the imagination, make you realize that the house you had just repainted 
or the block where you knew everyone's kids, that those things could be taken away and paved over, and no one even needed to so much as ask your opinion. When the presentation was done, the person sitting next to Anne volunteered to help spread the word. Then I put up my hand. I thought, I'm going to do it too. The Southwest Expressway would cut across three neighborhoods, each with its own character. First, it would enter Boston through a largely white, working-class neighborhood called Jamaica Plain. The state started clearing land there in 1966. I actually went from house to house and took pictures of the abandoned houses. Were there, were there still gardens growing in the backyards, flowers? Yeah, it looked like a normal neighborhood, except there weren't people. <laughs> The next neighborhood in the highway's path was Roxbury, the historic center of black culture in Boston. Everybody knows that there are going to be 1,500 jobs that will be taken. Everybody knows that there will be another 400 homes that will be taken. We know that there's going to be... Like in so many cities, Boston's black residents were facing perhaps the greatest impact from highways. Because Roxbury is where the Southwest Expressway and the inner belt, the spoke and the hub, they were going to meet in a towering five-story interchange. The fact that 150 acres of developable land in the Roxbury, Jamaica Plain area is going to be taken by this four-lane highway. On the other side of that interchange was a third neighborhood, the South End. Here, the city started to get more dense with rows of old brownstones that were pretty run down in those days. It was a neighborhood approximately one mile square that would have been entirely surrounded by highways. Those voices you just heard, Tom Corrigan, Chuck Turner, and Ken Crookmeyer, would all end up involved with a new umbrella organization, the Greater Boston Committee on the Transportation Crisis, or GBC for short. But as the coalition grew, it also became more unwieldy, Each neighborhood had its own particular issues with the highways and its own particular culture. There's a story of Chuck Turner showing up for a protest in a mostly Italian neighborhood, dressed in a dashiki and carrying a poster of Malcolm X. Some residents were grateful for the solidarity. Some walked away right there. To help unify all the various factions... The GBC took a very simple position. No new highways in Greater Boston, period. The days of debating routes were officially over. And the strategy of this new group was right in the name. Make this an issue for all of Greater Boston, not just three neighborhoods. That's how you get the governor's attention. I had the set of slides in a carousel, and a whole group of us spread out over the entire metropolitan area and tell people about the plans for the highway. And everywhere they went, they found people who wanted to listen. Here's Chuck Turner, one of the lead activists in Roxbury, speaking at a public meeting. You know, in this country, it's a strange thing that if you look on issues, you usually see black people fighting white people. You usually see the rich against the poor. You usually see the suburbanites against people in the inner city. And it's strange. It's strange when you see one issue And all those people were united and saying, we don't want it built and we're going to stop it. And Governor Sargent and no other political official in this state is going to be able to build the highway over that objection. By January of 1969, when Francis Sargent took his oath as governor, 
the GBC protesters were ready. About 2,000 folks show up in front of the state house saying, what are you going to do about this road? What are you going to do about this, Sergeant? What had started as a small group of Cambridge residents pushing back against a single road had grown into a radical challenge to the state's entire road-building policy. And this was the coming-out party for the movement. All the players, all the factions, gathered in one place. It spilled down the stairs of the state house over into Boston Common. The fire department came. People from every neighborhood in Boston. Anstey Benfield led a march over from Cambridge and addressed the crowd. A group of protesters carried a giant coffin that said, Here lies Cambridge. A plane flew overhead, towing a sign that said, Homes, not highways. And so, to his credit, Francis Sargent does come out of the State House on that day and addresses the crowd. We have with us now the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. At this moment, Sargent is kind of a contradictory figure. On the one hand, he used to run the Department of Public Works. So he was the guy in charge of planning and building roads for the whole state. And he acknowledged that fact right away. I was the person who made the decision back a number of years ago regarding the route through Cambridge. I made that decision. These people do not look impressed by him. They do not look pleased by him. But he tries to make his appeal. I want you to know... Because on the other hand, Sargent was known as a nature lover and a conservationist. Before he was in charge of roads, he had campaigned to create the Cape Cod National Seashore and protect the whole area from development. So the question was, which side of his past would come out now? The conservationist or the road builder? I made it then, and I said at that time, and I say now, that if we ever build highways, we must build them with a heart. The only concrete promise Sargent made that day was to review the whole issue of urban highways and come back with a decision. For the protesters, that was not good enough. Work on the expressway was happening. Houses were being taken. Land was being cleared. And every day that passed made the whole thing feel that much more inevitable. It's an eerie place to visit, even on a sunny autumn day. WGBH sent a reporter out to document the empty strip of land that had been cleared for the Southwest Expressway. By the summer of 69, over a thousand homes had been taken along this corridor, almost two miles long, and there were hundreds more homes still to go. Suddenly, in the middle of the crowded city, there are acres of open space and unnatural quiet. Sometimes a clothesline and drying sheets behind a house tells you that not all of the buildings in the block are abandoned yet. And far off, at the edge of this wasteland, the city abruptly begins again. To people living in this area, the empty buildings and weed-filled lots have become a nightmare. It was pretty wild, I'll put it that way. It was, it was growing wild. Ronald Perry grew up in a public housing project less than 50 feet from where the highway was supposed to be built. And as a 13-year-old kid, the whole area felt like a no-man's land. I would, like, go up to the chain-link fence and crawl up and, and just walk. Would you see other people out there? 
No, just me and my dog, Tiger. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Dirt, grass, just open areas. Just open areas. As he walked along the route of the planned highway, Perry would pass a trailer that the Black Panther Party had set up to provide basic health services and breakfast for neighborhood kids. You know, um, milk, cereal, or anything like that. He would then pass the boarded-up windows of a local hamburger joint called Kemp's. I don't really remember when it closed. Just over time, it just gradually disappeared. It was almost like being abandoned slowly but surely. And farther down, on the side of a railroad embankment, he would see the words, Stop I-95, spray-painted in white letters, maybe 12 feet tall. It was huge. It was huge. Even as a kid, Ronald Perry could tell that something big was happening. Neighbors were talking, and flyers were posted, warning of two serpents coming to strangle the neighborhood. That mile of dirt and grass he walked was surrounded by over a thousand units of public housing. A thousand families just like his, wondering how much more land would be taken, and what the effects of those roads would be. And so the whole place, the land, the people, the buildings, hung in limbo. What was going to happen to my mother and me? It's a lot of people to displace. And if you displace people, where were they going to go? How come the governor did not stop the demolition of homes that is still going on today as requested by... All through 1969, pressure was building on Sargent from all sides. I-95 isn't an answer. It's a continuation. When for some reason it seems fashionable to be against highways... Cars are here to stay, and don't forget it. Them people have had enough. To the average citizen it probably didn't look like Sargent was taking any action at all. But that year, the new governor did follow through on his promise. He created a task force to study the issue. And somehow identified me as a person to lead the task force. Alan Altshuler was teaching political science at MIT, and he was content in his academic life until he got the call from one of Sargent's aides. And I said no. But then Sergeant personally called me. He said he really didn't know what to do about the highways. And I said, I'll tell you what, this was my fatal mistake. I said, I will do it if you promise that when we finish, you will publish our report. Sergeant agreed, and Altshuler got to work. He met with activists from the GBC and heard their arguments. But what really struck him was the lack of any coherent argument from the other side. The anti-highway people... We're talking about some of the devastating consequences. And the Department of Public Works really didn't have any significant answers. They just wanted something to build because building is what they did? Well, they, they were in tune, to be fair to them, with highway departments all across the United States. I mean, all 50 states were trying to build out their interstate systems. This legislation had been enacted in 1956. We're now in 1969. No governor or no state government had ever stopped a segment of interstate highway in all these years. So they were typical. They weren't villains of some sort. They were conscientious people who were just doing their thing. In January of 1970, just a few days after New Year's, 
Alan Altshuler's task force finally presented their findings to the governor. It was my job as the chairman to brief Sergeant. The report was scathing, not just about the highways, but about the entire planning process that led to those highways. And it basically called on Sergeant to halt all construction immediately. His face got red. He stiffened. And he was polite. But I wouldn't have bet at that moment that he was about to take our recommendations very seriously. By this time, a whole year had passed since Sargent became governor, and activists were already planning a second demonstration in front of the State House. Tom Corrigan from Jamaica Plain was leading the GBC, and in his words, the goal was to pull out all the stops, to hold the governor accountable for his lack of action. Then, Three nights before the date of the protest, a cryptic message arrived from two men close to the governor. They said, call off the demonstration. They were very serious about it. And they, were, they came close to saying, we're very close to an announcement. Don't blow it by making him think that he's giving in to you by having a demonstration. It was Corrigan's call. He knew that the rank-and-file membership were rearing to go, and the last thing they would want was to give in to the governor's will. But Corrigan decided to give Sargent a little more time. He promised he would resign if the gambit failed. And we postponed it. Did it feel like a gamble, though, at the time? It's always a gamble, but it, it worked. A week later... Governor Sargent did something very unusual for any politician. He said, quote, We were wrong. That day, he ordered a freeze on all active highway construction in Greater Boston. None of the activists I interviewed talked about that day as a major victory in itself. It was only a freeze, pending more study. But at least the destruction of homes had finally stopped. Altshuler remembers going down to Washington, D.C. with Sargent soon after that announcement and meeting with Sargent's old boss, Volpe, who is now the Secretary of Transportation. They were hoping to use some federal money to further study the state's options, and they needed approval from Volpe. And he went into a 10-minute tirade against Sargent for having made this decision. Sergeant just stood there, and uh, when it was over, uh, he said, Governor, he still called Volpe Governor, you have to listen to the people. And Volpe twirled around, and he pointed at me, who he had just met, and he said, Frank, you're listening to the wrong people. Despite that initial response, the Department of Transportation did ultimately grant the funding. That money would support a two-year comprehensive study of the region's entire transportation network. Roads, highways, bridges, tunnels, buses, everything. Crucially, Altshuler's group looked into whether they could spend the money meant for highways on new mass transit options, new subway lines, for example. This was unprecedented. No state had ever reallocated money like this. It was a laboratory for what could happen when the narrative changed and the orthodoxy of highways was questioned. At the end of it, Sargent scheduled a broadcast slot 
to announce his final decision. Governor's transportation message, videotape 424, air date 11-30-72. Did you know what he was going to say? No, we were all lobbying like crazy, but, you know, we, we didn't know. In 10, 9, 8, 7... So we were all six, sitting in our houses, five. watching, breathless. Here is the governor of the Commonwealth, Francis W. Sargent. I present to you tonight decisions touching the lives of all of us. I will ask that you share the risks. I'll show you the opportunities. The problems of transportation have held us prisoner for 40 years, and recently that captivity has become intolerable. You, your family, your neighbors have become caught in a system that's fouled our air, ravaged our cities, choked our economy, and frustrated every single one of us. Shall we build more expressways through cities? Shall we forge new chains to shackle us to the mistakes of the past? No. We will not repeat history. We shall learn from it. We will not build the expressways. I think Sargent's decision to cancel the road was a shock. Better than anything I could have hoped for. So he announced this, and we all, in our individual houses, leaped up and ran to the GBC headquarters <laughs> and drank and cheered and hullabalooed. It was a miracle, it seemed. Joy, joy and happiness, and thank the good Lord. With that speech, Sargent removed almost 25 miles of highway from the interstate system, the first time any state or governor had done so. Sargent then went on for almost 15 minutes detailing how the state would seek alternatives to the canceled highways and invest in mass transit. Yes, highways had been canceled before, but not like this. Not on this scale, not with this kind of authority and vision. I think it's worth sitting with Sargent's words for a little longer and reminding ourselves this is a Republican governor and former commissioner of public works speaking in 1972. The risks we take come down to betting on ourselves, on people versus things, on people versus automobiles, on people versus the reckless destruction of our homes, our environment, the very quality of our lives, all in the false name of progress. The only real progress is the progress of people. I've counted on your help before. And it's been there. I call upon you once again, and I'm sure that you will answer that call. Every time I hear those words, I feel inspired, awed, really, that our governor could speak with that kind of unabashed idealism, that belief in government, and also with the conviction that it wasn't just talk, it was action. Feels refreshing, to be honest. My interest in this whole story springs from a feeling, a hope, really, that our nation is on the precipice of a new era of infrastructure. And I'm not just thinking about roads and bridges here. I'm thinking about wind turbines, solar farms, transmission lines, battery plants, about making our buildings more energy efficient and our coastlines more resilient to storms and flooding. 
If you look at any optimistic scenario for surviving climate change, it involves building stuff on a totally unprecedented scale. In a way, Sargent had it easy. He was choosing not to build something, to keep things as they were. And I don't think we have that luxury right now, which is why the story I'm most interested in is the story of what comes next. It's not about what our state said no to. It's what we said yes to, what we did build. Among the many physical legacies of Boston's anti-highway fight, there's now a train line that runs where the Southwest Expressway was supposed to go. This is Roxbury Crossing. If you get off in Roxbury, those acres of cleared land are home to a community college, a health center, Boston police headquarters, and the largest mosque in New England. Uh, do you know where to get the back bay bus? Uh, yeah, you want to get on the train towards Oak Grove in two minutes. Imagining a highway here now, it's unthinkable. And out at the edge of the city, you can still see where the two strips of concrete dead end in the woods, never to be continued. But there is another legacy, a connection that most people don't talk about and that I certainly didn't understand growing up. Because in that same speech Sargent gave, there are a few lines about an ambitious and visionary idea. Interesting long-term idea, but we'll see. What if the city could go further than just stopping highways? What if it could tear them down? put them underground, and stitch the city back together. This would be better than learning from the past. It would be correcting the past. That actually became the origin of the Big Dig. And in two years, Fred Salvucci would be in a position to take it on. Thank you all for joining us here today for the announcement of a very, very important decision. And it's a decision which required more than a little soul-searching on my part. That's next time. The show is produced by Isabel Hibbert and myself, Ian Koss. It's edited by Lacey Roberts. The editorial supervisor is Stephanie Lydon, with support this episode from Lisa Wardle. May Lay is the project manager, and the executive producer is Devin Maverick Robbins. This episode was informed by two fantastic books about the Boston anti-highway movement. People Before Highways, Boston Activists, Urban Planners, and a New Movement for City Making by Carolyn Crockett, and Rights of Way, 
The Politics of Transportation in Boston and the U.S. City, which includes an incredibly detailed account written in the 60s and 70s by a Globe reporter named Alan Lupo. I highly recommend them both. To see archival video and learn more about the show, go to gbhnews.org. The artwork is by Matt Welch. Our closing song is ETA by Damon and Naomi. The Big Dig is a production of GBH News and distributed by PRX. GBH. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at L-E-E-S-A At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.